This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Rewilding is a conservation approach based on reintroducing lost animal species to their natural habitats. Last week, in episode one on this topic, we focused primarily on wilderness areas and on what's called genetic rescue, using genetic editing tools to increase gene diversity within a species and prevent future extinctions. In the first part of today's show, we move closer to our urban environments, looking at the role rewilding can play in our suburbs, rural areas and in the fringe areas around our cities. But first, here's a reminder of episode one. There's a lot of things that I really like about the term rewilding. So I know that there's been a lot of focus on reintroducing large charismatic megafauna, but I think the term has really evolved to incorporate many more different taxa and the entire ecosystem and all the downstream cascades that come as a result of those introductions. Rewilding can have more unpredictable trajectories. You can get into a situation where maybe disease might increase or certain risk to human population might increase. And so if that's not very well factored in and if communities living around are not engaged with decision about whether or not to go for rewilding and how it should be done, then you can get a lot of conflict. Look, absolutely there's a challenge when you talk about bringing particularly large predators back to the landscape, which may kill and eat livestock, you know, and we know that dingoes do that in some areas. But we also do know that some farmers like having dingoes on their property because they control kangaroo numbers and things like feral pigs and also feral goats. So we need to consider all the views and the values of different people across society and manage those when we're thinking about reintroductions and rewilding. And if you missed that program, you can download the podcast from the Future Tense website. Let's start today in Europe with Professor of Ecology José Ray Benayas. He's from Alcala University in Spain, and he's been researching what he terms passive rewilding. Land abandonment in the world, particularly in the developed countries. Since the 1950s, there is a strong migration from rural areas to cities, to urban environments. The fundamental reason for that is that people look for better economic opportunities, labor opportunities and services that they don't find in the rural areas. So pasture land and cropland are abandoned and revegetation, natural revegetation, natural forest regeneration takes place. When vegetation is recovered, there is absence of human disturbances, animals feel safe and they start to colonise these abandoned areas. It might surprise some people to hear this, but Europe today has more forest cover than a century ago. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. For instance, in Spain, a country that I know well, obviously, (laughs) now there is 30% more forest area than in the 1990s. And In Europe, since the 1950s, the annual rate of forest increase has been 0.4 
percent per year. This means about 315 square kilometers, let us say six times the area of France since the 1950s, as I said. Still, it is predicted that land abandonment will occur at least until 2030. So we have much more forest area than in the past. But while the increase in forested areas in Europe is leading to the return of many animal species driven out decades ago, that's not to say that everyone is happy with the development. So there's a fugitive brown bear on the loose in northern Italy right now. This specific brown bear, M49, he's classified as a problem bear. He's attacked a lot of livestock. He hasn't attacked any people. There are a, a variety of perceptions about this issue because unfortunately there is a dichotomy between rural people and urban people. So urban people perceive land abandonment and natural rewilding as an opportunity for biodiversity, for natural processes, for enjoying the outdoors. But rural people usually perceive negatively this abandonment and this recolonization and recovery of fauna in, in the rural environments. Certainly the wolves sometimes attack the cattle. And okay, so for the people, that the farmers that are still raising cattle, that's a problem. So there are some human-wildlife conflicts, but on the other side, there are also other economical and social opportunities and services and nature-based businesses that rural areas can take advantage of. Such as? For instance, ecotourism, adventure tourism, wildlife management, forest management, fishing, also a, a well-organized hunting, nature observation. Those are businesses that may thrive. And actually in Spain, we have a number of rural areas that have experienced in the last few years an increase in income due to ecotourism. And a number of hotels, rural hostels, adventure companies, wildlife watching companies are flourishing there. There's a temptation whenever we talk about rewilding to focus on the big animals, the wolves, the bears, those kind of things. But what we're talking about here really is a wide variety of animals and also plants, aren't we? Yes, that's right. After cropland or pastureland abandonment, there is a natural forest regeneration process. Natural regeneration of vegetation is the key ecological driving force. This creates habitat for the entire biological community, plants and animals. But the point is that people mostly like animals and they feel attracted and fascinated by big birds, prey birds, the carnivores and the big herbivores. But we are talking about the recovery of an entire community of species. And most of these species are not very visible to people. And in terms of that issue of attitudes, public attitudes towards rewilding, do you expect that to change some of the negative views of rewilding that you mentioned? Do you expect some of those to soften over time as this becomes more common? I think that in Europe, we are now in a transition. 
Any transition is difficult. Also a transition in our personal lives could be difficult. The best way to change attitudes of rural people is that they feel that farm abandonment may bring other socioeconomic opportunities, as I mentioned earlier, and clearly benefit their livelihoods. Now in Europe, there is a, quite a lot of money to reconstruct the economy after the COVID crisis, and about 20 or 25 percent of those funds will be invested in rural areas to provide them with services such as hospital, Wi-Fi, internet access, uh, schools, and also to support new businesses. And so the project is to favor a green recovery, and there must be clearly benefits for the rural economies. So they can change the perceptions. Other issues should be considered as well, for instance, payments for delivered biodiversity and ecosystem services, which are mostly underdeveloped. We can also talk about tax incentives to those people that run businesses that conciliate biodiversity and forest or farmland exploitation. And for the particular Cases of wild damage to, for instance, the cattle or the crops, there must be prompt indemnities and generous indemnities. I'm optimistic and the transitions are difficult, but hopefully there will be opportunities of learning to learn with wildlife. I'm interested in a couple of things. One is, you know, how we preserve what we have in cities and, and enhance their biodiversity, but also how we think really kind of uniquely and differently about the urban fabric as a place for wildlife. So, you know, can we actually think about having wildlife in our streetscape, on our roundabouts, you know, in our backyards and front yards? Conservation scientist Sarah Beckersey, an associate professor in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University. She argues that we need to be far more aware of the biodiversity that already exists within our urban environments. I think we almost certainly underestimate it, yes. I mean, there was someone was telling me the other day that up to a third of houses in Brisbane, for example, have pythons in the ceiling. <laughs> I don't think many people would be aware of that necessarily. But you know, there's no doubt that it's also substantially diminished. I mean, we've spent hundreds of years attempting to make cities as places that are safe from nature, if you like, <laughs> constructing them to keep us away from nature and to keep nature away from us. And so it's, it's really only in the last couple of decades that we've asked designers and planners and architects to turn that thinking on its head and, and work out ways to invite nature back in and allow some species that you know once used to thrive alongside us to do so again. And what sort of areas are we talking about within the city? What do we mean by vegetation patches? I mean, we are really lucky in Australia that we still have some remnant vegetation in our cities. And most of Australian cities have actually got quite critically endangered ecosystems existing in small patches right on the edges of our cities. So, for example, in Melbourne, we have the basalt plains grassland, probably Australia's most critically endangered ecosystem. Hardly any of it left, less than 1%. What is left is in small patches, and most of it, unfortunately, is on private land and under planned kind of housing development. Same for Sydney, you know, we have the Cumberland Plains 
grassland, which is a again a critically endangered ecosystem, occurs only in small patches and very highly threatened by <laughs> urban development. It's on coastal plain and around Perth. You know, it's the world biodiversity hotspot, one of 15 such places in the world. And we've lost hundreds of thousands of hectares of this ecosystem, you know, much of it by just diminishing our small patches <laughs> that are left on the edges of our cities. But that which remains is high in biodiversity or can be high in biodiversity. Absolutely. And I suppose our focus is on how we not just retain what we have, but how we transform the urban fabric to the place where those ecosystems can again thrive. Having every gardener in Australia actually being part of the solution to our most critically endangered species by planting them in their nature strips, in their front yards, their backyards and the like. But, you know, also there's great scope for rewilding or bringing back species that once used to thrive in cities and have been pushed out through systematic loss of vegetation or just through key threats. I mean, the, the urban fabric can be a really hostile place for wildlife, but it doesn't have to be. So just through some tweaks to the way that we design our housing, the way that we retrofit our houses, we can make cities much more habitable places for wildlife. And we also think at the same time it's much more habitable for people. And you talk about umbrella species. Just tell us what that means and why it's important to focus on those if you want to try and rewild an area. Sure. So one of the ideas is that we can use umbrella species. So species that uh, if you create habitat and remove the threats for that species, then you're likely to be creating habitat and removing threats for a whole range of other species. For example, take the fairy wren. We create the sort of mid-story the fairy wren really enjoys. There'll be a whole lot of other similar kind of species that enjoy having a kind of protected mid-story in our city, something you just don't see very much in our streetscapes. But there's no reason why it can't be there. You know, the experience of being in lockdown over COVID, which is obviously more intense in some parts of Australia than others, really brought to the fore the fact that there were people who had nature in and around where they lived and there were people who didn't. And it became quite a sort of environmental justice issue, if you like. Having access to nature became an environmental justice issue. And so I think people have actually banded together to try and create more biodiverse sort of streetscapes, for example. There's a really terrific example of this in Melbourne, the, the Melbourne Bee Corridor. We're just using every opportunity, so front yards, nature strips, boxed gardens around street trees, to create native bee habitat along a big corridor. And, you know, this, is in, this really does involve the community because it's often requiring the use of people's, you know, front gardens, private land. But, you know, I think on the whole it's a really positive experience for those individuals who get involved in that. And what's the best way for people and communities to go about this and to make sure that they're targeting the right sort of species for, you know, for their particular area? So we've produced a protocol called Biodiversity Sensitive Urban Design and it seeks to guide users through the process of building biodiversity into the urban fabric. And it starts with an investigation of the site, which obviously is what have you got, but also what used to be there. And that's actually, it's not an easy question to answer. Oftentimes we have very poor historical data about the vegetation and species that once used to occupy a site. So thinking creatively, can you choose some species or ecosystems that you'd like to have back in that place? 
then you have to think really ecologically, systematically about how you design for it. What are the resources it needs? And then it's also thinking about the threats. So can you install, for example, bird-friendly glass so that you know, you're not, your house is, is not a, a threat to birds? Can we think carefully about the lighting that we choose to use in our gardens so that we can minimise the risk that it will interrupt you know, migration cycles and nighttime feeding and the like? And then it's really thinking carefully about how your particular site that you're interested in fits in with the broader landscape. How do you connect your place to the next place that has fairy wrens, for example, so that it has some chance of actually getting to your place and, and thriving? Conservation scientist Sarah Beckersey. And if you're interested in the idea of backyard rewilding, for want of a better term, you'll find a link to Dr Beckersey's tips for how to get started on the Future Tense website. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Changing tack now, and universal basic income is a concept that's essentially designed to counter rising inequality. We took a thorough look at the idea on Future Tense back in 2016. At its most basic, UBI as it's called, involves giving everyone in a community or society a minimum income from the government regardless of wealth. Proponents see it as a safety net, a way of giving people on low and insecure incomes the breathing space to look beyond the next paycheck and to explore their entrepreneurial side. Dr Rebecca Hasdell recently conducted a major review of UBI programs and experiments for the Stanford Basic Income Lab. And she says the current pandemic has significantly increased interest in what a universal basic income could deliver. With COVID, we've seen where there's fragility in our current labour market and that for reasons completely outside of someone's control, they can find themselves without work and without an income. And this has especially been the case for workers who are already vulnerable in that wage labour sector. So those are people where jobs are typically lower wage, where they're part-time or where their work is precarious or less predictable. And what it's shown is that those are a population who, because of the low wages in the first place, were least able to weather an economic shock and didn't have the savings they needed for when a crisis like COVID hits and they fully lose employment to be able to keep meeting their needs without some kind of support kicking in. So I think what COVID has done is it's shown that we do have this economic system that's actually very vulnerable to these outside shocks. In this case, it's the COVID pandemic, but we might ask similar questions about what would happen with climate change, for example, or with some other kind of natural disaster. And have we seen many governments implementing what could be termed aspects of of universal basic income in their response to the pandemic? So we've seen many of the relief programs that have been put in place during the pandemic share some of the features of a UBI. So unconditional payments in cash to all members of a community. And that was the case with some of the COVID relief payments in the United States. We do also see, given that there was this growing momentum before the pandemic, that many cities in the United States were already in the position where they were planning to implement universal basic income pilots, which are now in place. And following some of the successful outcomes of the Stockton pilot in California, which was one of the first city-led universal basic income pilots in the United States, 
We've seen several other municipalities join the Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, which is a coalition of U.S. mayors who are supportive of this idea, with several of those cities preparing or currently being in the process of running or implementing pilot programs. So there is actually quite a deal of experimentation still going on. There is a lot of experimentation still going on. I think one of the questions that came out of some of the reviews of the evidence that we've been doing is whether they're going to answer some of the research gaps that we still have. So many of the pilot programs in the U.S., which are being run by city mayors or in larger U.S. cities, aren't necessarily at the scale that we would need to be able to answer some of those gaps that continue to remain in the literature about what a UBI will do to labor markets, for example, or to longer-term health outcomes. So without something delivered at scale, we're not going to necessarily see the interactions we need between individuals in their broader environment. If it's not run by a government, we won't necessarily understand some of the interactions with the existing tax and benefit systems. And they're often short-term. So without a long enough time frame, we won't necessarily observe the longer-term outcomes we need to answer some of the research gaps that we still see in the evidence around what cash transfer payments can do. So where we have the most research really is in labor market participation. And this has been an area where we've seen a lot of research owing to concern really that people will stop working. And what we largely find is no. At the aggregate level, we see the argument that money with no strings attached will lead people to stop working is just not supported in the evidence. And in some cases, we actually see an increase in work This is not surprising, I think, because in most proposals, a basic income is not enough money to actually replace work. And in fact, what the recent Stockton experiment in California has shown is that work actually increases. And this is because a basic income provides exactly what's baked into the title, a base, to give people security to either pursue new opportunities, to be able to afford things like childcare or transportation that allow them to enter the labor market, or to potentially be able to pursue new retraining to give them a better standing in terms of their ability to enter the labor force. Where we do see a decrease is in some demographic groups. So women tend to slightly reduce their hours or those in other caregiving roles. And in the case of some of the 1970s experiments where we draw a lot of our data, younger males deferred work to pursue further education. So overall, we just do not see people leaving the labor force. In fact, we see some of the opposite. And when they do leave, it's because they're in groups who are using that time to participate in other ways in the community. And what about health and education issues? So we do have some decent evidence for impacts on education and health. However, these are areas where I really would say more research is needed and we still have some gaps. So in both cases, we have good evidence for an impact on shorter term outcomes, things like school attendance or healthcare usage. And the long term implications of those types of outcomes is really quite profound. However, the evidence on actual longer term outcomes like educational performance, for example, or in an area where I work in health, chronic disease outcomes is much less consistent. And this is owing in part to the types of evidence that we're drawing on when we're coming to conclusions about what a universal basic income could do. Is there a difference in the effectiveness of a universal basic income in high income countries as opposed to low and middle income countries? This is a really complex question to answer. 
our evidence review looked at both low and middle and high income countries to look at the evidence across labor market participation and then health and education impacts. But what's important to clarify is when we're talking about the evidence for a universal basic income, we're actually talking about quite a diverse set of programs that we're drawing on to come to those conclusions. And in the case of low and middle income countries, we actually have seen more programs that share both the features of unconditionality and universality of a basic income. And the reason that is, is because what a base would be in some of those countries, it makes it easier to plan and deliver some of these interventions at a larger kind of community scale. When we're talking about the evidence in higher income countries, We're talking largely about programs that share a couple of the features with a basic income, but really don't replicate what we mean when we we talk about that true definition of a program that's fully unconditional, that's delivered to everyone in a community or in a demographic group. And again, that's delivered at some form of scale. So for example, we might be talking about programs that are universal, but don't necessarily reach an income floor of $500 or $1,000 a month, which is the case of the Alaska Permanent Dividend Fund. Or we might be talking about programs which are targeted, which was the case with several guaranteed income experiments in the 1970s in the US and Canada. But we don't actually have an example to draw from that meets all those different features. So some of the reason that we see different impacts, which we do, is that we're talking about sort of fundamentally different programs to some extent. We do, though, in both cases, both low and higher income countries, see consistent evidence for decrease in poverty. We see consistent evidence that people do not leave the labor market. And then we do see consistent evidence for some of these shorter term health and education outcomes. Universal basic income is unusual in the sense that it has proponents on both the left and the right of politics. On the right of politics, many people see potential for it as a replacement for social welfare. From your research, is is that a viable way of looking at it? So I think that the definition and the proposal people tend to put forward really does depend on what problem they are solving for. So as you say, we've seen a lot of interest in universal basic income proposals across the political spectrum. On the left, I think people see it as a way to address issues of persistent and chronic poverty that have not been addressed through our social safety net, which tends to be quite regressive in some ways that doesn't set people up for success. And that doesn't seem to create a pathway out of poverty. On the right, I think people see it as a way to potentially streamline a cumbersome social safety net and to put the choice, so to speak, in people's hands as to what they do with the money. I think what likely is going to be most effective is something in the middle that we can't necessarily offer basic income without the types of wraparound services that will help people continue to be successful but that we certainly need to move away from the way that we've designed our social welfare system right now, which we know does not lead people out of poverty. In fact, we see increasing trends of intergenerational poverty. Just a final question. The pandemic, as you pointed out, has sharpened the interest in this idea. But given that governments have had to spend an extraordinary amount of revenue to keep their economies going, is that going to impact on the implementation of universal basic income in the future, do you think? Will governments have enough money to want to experiment further with this? I think that's like the billion dollar question. (laughs) I guess as an example, I'll maybe draw on some recent modelling that was done in British Columbia, Canada, where I live 
as part of a multi-year panel to examine a basic income. And they found that a full basic income, so that fully universal program, would lift around 8,000 people out of poverty for every billion dollars spent, whereas a targeted program would reduce the poverty rate by only 68%, so we wouldn't get a full reduction of poverty, but lift 44,000 people out of poverty for every billion dollars spent. So I think what the pandemic has done is show governments that we do need a new social safety net and it's opened the door to rethink what the system looks like right now and how it could be reimagined. I think realistically, we're likely to see a more incremental approach where we first reform some of the supports as they're available right now. I think of, for example, expansions in who is eligible for employment insurance or in the ways that we kind of have delivered payments but that likely the path to a full universal basic income might be a bit slower and down the road, particularly given kind of the fiscal strain that we're seeing post-pandemic. Rebecca Hasdell, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And Dr Hasdell is a postdoctoral fellow at Dalhousie University in Canada. Her review was conducted for the Stanford Basic Income Lab. That's Future Tense for another week. My thanks to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.